0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry.
1: Imaging is at the forefront of diagnosis, monitoring, and management of almost every neurological disease. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the latest in the field of neuroradiology, including applications of the latest technologies and approaches across neurological subspecialties. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Doc Su Moon join me for today's conversation. Dr. Moon is a neuroradiologist in Cleveland Clinic's Department of Diagnostic Radiology. Doc Sue, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you, Glenn. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, you probably know this already, but I'm going to talk a little bit about CT scans and the Beatles, because I think this is fascinating. We recently had some family visiting and we took them to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they had a Beatles exhibit going on, Yes, uh, which was great because they're real Beatles fans. And then probably a day or two later, I listened to a talk Uh, from a neurosurgeon who was talking about the Beatles and the development of the CT scanner Mm -hmm. uh, which I hadn't known but I'm sure that's 101 for you guys but as you know the Beatles recorded uh, under a company called EMI and EMI was electronics and musical industries and they were obviously on the musical side of things and in 1967 the Beatles generated 30 percent of the revenue uh, for the company, and they were generating almost $700 a second in revenue at that point. And the powers that be uh, at EMI were also investing in medical equipment research. And they came across an individual who worked for them, Godfrey Hounsfield, which is a very famous name that you know quite well who then ended up going forward and developed the first CT scanner for which he won the Nobel Prize now Uh, EMI, from what I can tell, didn't reap all the rewards of the CT scanners that are everywhere today and they sort of passed it along to GE and Siemens, who then built it up and then developed the MRI scanners. Uh, But I think it's just kind of fascinating and I'm sure I've embellished it too much, but I think it's kind of really cool that the Beatles were involved with the development of the CT. Is this common lore in the... Yes, I remember hearing about that and doing a little bit of research.
2: Apparently, um, back in the 70s, the Cleveland Clinic was the beneficiary of that. From what I understand, we had the second CAT scanner in the United States at that time, and it was produced by EMI. And then uh, apparently there was a big manufacturer here called Picker International. I think they've since merged with some other companies. But yeah, this was, believe it or not, a hotbed of CT imaging. It was a head-only scanner, and I remember hearing that uh, the initial scanners took somewhere like 15 or 30 minutes to scan one brain mm-hmm. without all the computerization that we have now. But
1: yeah, I, I've, I'm familiar with that story. Yeah, I think it's just fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff. I I'm a, I really like the history of medicine uh, and I always try and tell the residents and medical students, you know, if you can find some interesting tidbits or facts about what you do, it'll just ingrain it and stick it in there and, and just make your job much more enjoyable. So uh, I think it's always a great way to go. So... You know, I'll play more Beatles music now. That's what they probably play at your, your big meetings. So uh, in a prior episode of a podcast that we did, and we hate to have you rehash somebody else's work, but we had uh, had your friend Steve Jones on, and Steve talked about the seven Tesla MRI scan. And so to start uh, today's conversation, uh, we we'll, thought we'd just uh, revisit that again just a little bit uh because it's important information that's there so can you enlighten our audience once again on on what the 7t is and and how it's being used and why we might consider uh, using a higher strength magnet well i think uh
2: steve spoke with you sometime at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. since then uh we've actually had a a seven tesla ft approved mr scanner uh installed Uh, as of November of 2021. And we've been scanning patients on there uh, since that time. In fact, we split the day in the mornings, we used to scan clinical patients in the afternoons, we use it for research. But most of the MRI scanners that are done nowadays is somewhere between 1.0 Tesla and 3.0 Tesla with a large number being 1.5 Tesla. The, uh, The Tesla signifies the magnetic strength of the magnet. Okay. And basically it shows you how much data you can pull out of it so the higher the magnetic field the the more data you have so uh, the more the stronger signal that you have so you can usually split it up to different things you can do it so that you can get higher resolution images you can potentially do faster imaging instead of something higher resolution Uh, or you can do some novel things you can't do with 1.5 or 3 tesla So that's where we are right now. And, you know, we've had a good half a year to scan patients. So we've scanned a a fair number of epilepsy patients here, since we're a big epilepsy center, and we've been able to see abnormalities that are invisible, virtually invisible on 1.5 or 3 Tesla scanners. So it's been very helpful in that way. So when we have a seizure patient, uh, who comes here and their MRI may be non-lesional as we say, or, or, normal, um, and, Some of those patients when we do it on the 7Tesla, the abnormality there becomes very obvious or perhaps they had a small questionable area that looked borderline or almost normal. So that's, uh, as Steve mentioned in your podcast, the 7Tesla MRI is a very good problem-solving tool. It's not that useful as a screening tool just because if you jump to that, you can miss some of the more obvious things. But uh, as a problem-solving tool, it's proven to be quite excellent. Now,
1: will it take all my fillings out if I'm in a seven T, or I'm okay there?
2: No, I I, I think you're okay there. Um, yeah, the magnets only really affect things that are ferromagnetic, so
1: you know, um, iron or cobalt or. Can you do the seven T in the spine as well, or is it better for the brain, or is the signal to noise ratio such that it's the scanner we have is a whole body scanner, mm-hmm. but doesn't the scanner isn't the only
2: thing we need to scan? We also need coils, which mm-hmm. are basically fancy antennas to image certain parts of the body. Currently, we only have head coils for that MR scanner. So uh, in the next six to nine months, we should be getting coils for the spine, uh, which will let us uh, do high resolution imaging of the spine to look for MS plaques or degenerative disease. So we're looking forward to that. But as of now, we're just
1: scanning the brain. Mm -hmm. And do you know the incidence of 7T Tesla use across the country? Is it, is it, there's a hundred scanners, there's 10 scanners? I think there
2: are about uh, 30 scanners in the Mm -hmm. United States currently, uh, 37 Tesla Mm -hmm. MRI scanners. So they're not very common. There's less than one per state. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand from my colleagues in other institutions, most of them are being used majority of their time for research, almost solely for research. So... We are unique in that we use this for clinical Mm problem-solving. And certainly, uh, you know, it's a very important tool for tertiary medical centers such as us to help
1: triage difficult patients. So I'm, you know, have no doubt that you uh, read thousands and thousands and thousands of MRIs, not just in one day, but just, <laughs> throughout the year, <laughs> yes. sometimes it feels like that in a day, <laughs> but you become very comfortable with it. How difficult was it when you first started reading the 7T? Is it really different looking at it or all the things that you learn generally, you just apply to it? Or did you really see things differently and you had to sort of retrain your brain of what to look for?
2: There is more detail and, um, you get to see more detail, normal, nice things, and more detail in background noise things. So it does take a while to retrain, to look at them. It it probably, you probably need to look at around a dozen or so uh, with a correlated 1.5 or three Tesla magnet to get used to it. And also the seven Tesla magnet does have certain limitations. It's not very good when you evaluate brain next to the skull, for instance, because there's a lot of susceptibility artifact but for most other uses, it, it's certainly better. Can you do MR spectroscopy with a 7T or no? We can, uh, but you know, MR spectroscopy's fallen out of favor just because um, in the past it hasn't proven for clinical use to be uh, that fruitful. So I don't think we do that many clinical MR spectroscopy scans at the clinic, you know. We do approximately 3,000, I think more like uh, 1,200, Neural MR scans per week, and in a month, I think maybe we do two spectroscopy scans, so yeah, they're a
1: minority. And I know that we're a big multiple sclerosis center here. The 7T with multiple sclerosis, anything, any new insights there? Um, yes, uh, we
2: can use that. Multiple sclerosis is, um, imaging-wise, is very nonspecific, as you know. So it looks like a conglomeration of white matter lesions, which can be caused by you know, dozens of different things, uh, including small vessel ischemic changes. But um, you know, with the seven Tesla MR scanner, uh, when we have the ultrastructure of the anatomy, you know, we can use it to determine non-specific or borderline patients using uh, the the central vein sign. So it's been very helpful in that way. So you know, about once a week or once every other week, we'll have a problematic patient
1: get scanned on the seven Tesla to evaluate does this person have MS or not. So i'm just curious and you may not know the answer to this but you know we start to hear more and more that ms is not just a white matter but also a gray matter disease yes can you see the gray matter disease or is it too gross a level if you have the right surface coils and you take the time
2: you can see the the plaques even on three tesla you can see it in the gray matter so one thing people forget is that yeah we separate brain into white matter and gray matter but in the gray matter, there's interconnections which are made by white matter. So, And certainly, you know, we see gray matter structures like the thalamus be affected in cases like ADEM. So, yeah, it, it's more of a research tool right now. But, you know, you can't see uh,
1: demyelination in the gray matter cortex. Mm-hmm. So let's move away from the 7T to functional MRI. Yes. You know, I remember... Uh, When I was training, you know, there was always a big issue in handedness, especially with epilepsy surgery, and and we used to do WADA's on everybody. Everybody Mm -hmm. get a WADA where you essentially freeze one of the hemispheres and determine where their language is. It seems like the functional MRI, one of the utilities has really replaced the WADA. Um, but you can tell me, are we still doing WADA's on patients?
2: And we still do WADA's. They're not nearly as common. Mm-hmm. And as you referred to, uh, the WADA test is an invasive procedure. Basically, we are doing a cerebral angiogram. And while we're doing it, we anesthetize half the brain. And epileptologists do neurologic testing. When I was in training, we used to do four or five of those every week. You mm-hmm. probably remember back then. Yeah. Uh, now, I think... From what I understand, we only do one or two a month in the most problematic patients. So the functional MRI has pretty much supplanted that. Uh, The only um, relative negative of fMRI is that it doesn't let us figure out which side, where memory resides. We don't have a good paradigm for that. But in terms of language localization, it's much better than WADA ever was. Because with the WADA test, you put half the cerebral hemisphere to sleep. Mm -hmm. and then you do the test so you can tell which side is dominant or if they're co-dominant. But um, on the fMRI, um, we can actually localize it to the area of the brain. We can see what part of the brain is active during the paradigms, which portion is active in controlling language. So even if it's on the same size, we can tell how far away it is from a lesion. For instance, we had a a young lady, a 16-year-old, who... um, had a a subtle cortical malformation in the dorsal right frontal lobe. And so she came here um, for language localization to figure out whether it was on the left or right side. And most people, it's on the left side. But when we tested her, we saw that her language was dominant on the right side. But we had enough information to show that the lesion that she had was about three centimeters away from her speech center, from her frontal perculum. So that gave enough margin so that uh, the surgeon's...
1: Could think about treating her without an open craniotomy or awake craniotomy. So I'm trying to remember a name from the past, and I remember uh, you may may or may not remember the research with it, but Jeff Ross I remember uh, was doing something with golf imagery with fMRI. Yes, uh, and I think they were looking at what area of the brain uh, was maybe active or could you. Could you improve your golf game by mentally going through it? Or do you remember what that I I vaguely
2: remember uh, Jeff um, is one of my mentors and um, I was one of his trainees when he was doing that research. But basically, I think he was evaluating, you know, golf golfers and um, when they miss wing or get their yips. (laughs) And um, I think basically he was evaluating golf dyspraxia Mm -hmm. uh, with that. Um, I, I don't know if he ever carried it. Further, but
1: it was, uh, it was fascinating research with the fMRI, yes. Well, certainly we use the fMRI in the tumor field for helping us understand where different areas are in the brain for tumors, for resection. Other areas are using the fMRI for, or? It, it's basically epilepsy and tumor. Mm-hmm. So we're, in terms of clinical
2: fMRI, we're a very large center. We do approximately 100 patients a year, so 100 patients a year. And I think it's fairly evenly split between the epilepsy patients and the brain tumor patients. So with the brain tumor patients, obviously, um, it helps the surgeons know if an eloquent area is next to or right on top of the tumor, or if brain plasticity has uh, had enough time to move those areas to somewhere adjacent or maybe a little bit further away. So. And do you see that? We see that not as much as we'd like, but uh, the fMRI is very helpful in, in localizing, you know, where speech is or where hand motor, uh, leg motor is in relationship to the tumor. So it is very useful, you know, for us
1: and, and for the surgeons. So one of the other tools that a, a lot of the surgeons in our group will use is DTI. Yes. Or diffusion tensor imaging. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, uh diffusion tensor imaging is basically uh a way to look at white matter tracts in the brain and uh it's using a diffusion information and you need a fairly a fairly powerful magnet and the right software packages and computers to process it but it gives a, a pretty good idea of whether a tumor or tumor edema affects any sort of uh, important tracts like the cortical spinal tracts or uh, maybe the arcuate fasciculus, uh, if it's related to speech. So it gives a very good guide again to uh, the surgeons when they're planning their surgeries. Mm-hmm.
1: Now I know that uh, we don't endear ourselves to the neuroradiologist when we're always asking you to do a perfusion image uh, along with the MRI scan. Uh, and certainly it has applications in in outside of tumor as well. but what types of things can we use with? With perfusion imaging, blood flow, those types of things.
2: Two big things we use it for are, and we can generally, for the most part, we use it in on um, an MRI, and that is for to evaluate to see if there's increased vascularity, which suggests that something's a high grade neoplasm, and we get that on basically anyone with an intermediate or high grade tumor. So the vast majority of our patients, as you know, and so we do it very frequently. And on a busy tumor day, for instance, we'll do a dozen perfusion study. So we're pretty experienced at reading those. We also use perfusion for stroke imaging. There are different parameters that we evaluate for you know, brain tumors. We, we use uh, CBV. For stroke, we use time to peak or mean transit time. But it'll give us a good idea of how much ischemic penumbra is or isn't. So it'll help the vascular neurosurgeons or endovascular... Uh, neurologist figure out whether uh, the patient is
1: appropriate to have thrombolysis or not. So occasionally I'll see a patient from Brain Health, you know, that has a meningioma or something, yes. and you know they always have different MRIs when they come from Brain Health, and they'll do volumetric MRIs yes. looking for that. Tell me a little bit about that so I can understand that a little bit more. What uh, I think they're looking at at brain atrophy. Yes. What well, we're in the we're in the phase of getting a lot
2: of data, so especially in patients who are older who might have memory loss, uh, we do a fair amount of volumetric imaging uh, that we've started about two years ago. So uh, the majority of patients with dementia or mild cognitive impairment can get uh, an MRI scanner with volumetrics, and on that we can evaluate the patient's brain parenchyma, uh, just probably about two dozen different uh, you know. Metrics including the frontal lobes, how much volume there is in relationship to a patient of their age, hippocampal formation, whether there's volume loss uh, compared to person of that cohort. So it, it gives a pretty good idea of uh, because the hippocampus, is, you know, is very small. You know, it's centimeter, centimeter and a half, and to actually try to measure it out, you know, we tend to be very inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And even eyeballing it on patients, just because the amount of volume loss increases, we're even the most seasoned of us are not very accurate, but using the volumetric quantitative MRI, Mm -hmm. we can have a very good idea of like if a patient's or a person's hippocampal formation or the 13th percentile for their age or smaller or larger, which gives us a a very good idea of how much atrophy they may have.
1: And so does that use AI, artificial intelligence, or you guys are putting on the the parameters and the software then calculates it. No,
2: it's it's a sophisticated computer program that segments out those portions of the brain. So mm-hmm. that is uh, computerized at this point. But in terms of uh, making the final call, it, it, we still have a little bit of input into that <laughs> as doctors. Maybe sometime in 2035, the computer will do that for us. Uh, I'm not worried that you guys are
1: gonna, uh, we still need you guys around. I'm not worried about that. Well, that's good to hear, Glenn. <laughs> Anything new in vasculitis? Um, yes, in vasculitis,
2: uh, there's been a big push to inflammatory disorders of the brain, so unknown encephalitides and and also vasculitis. So we do, uh, we've started to do a fair amount of intracranial vascular imaging, and we've done a few with the seven Tesla, but the bulk of it we do with. Uh, uh, conventional 3.0 Tesla magnets. And we can see things such as wall thickening and we can see enhancement in the vessel wall. And these are things that we didn't really know existed even happened like 10 years ago, but now we can get a very good idea of whether someone is suffering from atherosclerotic disease or some sort of vasculitis that needs to be worked up.
1: So I always like to use these as, as times for personal knowledge development. So I'm going to ask you some, okay some other types of questions here. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, evolution of gadolinium over time, because, you know, I know that we've changed the type of gadolinium that we've used over time to allow it to get excreted more in the kidneys. And Mm -hmm. I remember we used to really monitor the kidney function quite a bit, but now not so necessary, right? Yeah, well, you know,
2: gadolinium for the longest time was thought to be very benign. And for the most part, it is except for patients who have uh, issues with renal insufficiency. And in those patients, a very, very small fraction can get something called uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Okay. Um, There's a database of that. There's only about, I think, 450 or 500 patients who've ever gotten that Mm -hmm. uh, despite the hundreds of millions of MRIs with contrast that have been done throughout the years. So it doesn't have much in terms of renal function, but with MRI contrast, uh, we've actually changed contrast vendors just because um, there's linear and cyclic agents. Uh, the linear agents are the ones that are associated with uh, nephrogenic s- systemic fibrosis. Uh, the cyclic agents, because they bind the gadolinium tighter, are not. So we're currently using a, a cyclic contrast agent, a gadolinium based agent, gadolinium based contrast one other thing about gadolinium that we've realized is that yeah despite what contrast use that there is some tissue deposition over time it's relatively subtle so you know you can notice in patients who've gotten 50 or maybe 100 mris with contrast but for the most part it doesn't really affect anything and You know, these are just very trace amounts in the tissues.
1: Yeah, patients do ask me about that occasionally, you know, I think that maybe there'll be something written about it and a patient will say, you know, I've had MRIs for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can see some subtle changes on the T1 images uh, on those patients. And, you know, I always tell them that, you know, at this point, you know, we don't know of any specific, you know, you don't need to be chelated or have anything done. We don't know of any specific disease although we may be smarter down the road with yes. that.
2: Yes, so far the data shows that there's no harmful effects uh, despite repeated uh, administration of gadolinium, just like many other medical agents, mm-hmm. contrast agents.
1: And I guess uh, one commercial out there is that, you know, one of the other things that we run into problems with our pacemakers yes, uh, and other types of devices that are in there, and now... You know i i don't know the percentage of pacemakers that are placed that are mri compatible but i guess my commercial is that consider looking at mri compatible pacemakers for patients yeah
2: i think all the current ones are mr yeah we use the term conditional instead of oh, okay just because you know there's nothing that if you take a any sort of electronic device it may be working fine at one tesla but at three tesla it may not and at seven tesla it definitely may not. Mm-hmm. So we use the word conditional, but uh, I, I believe most of the, just about all of the pacemakers and AICDs being implanted now are MR conditionally safe. Uh, the problem comes in with patients who've had theirs implanted 15, 20 years ago, where, you know, the thoughts of getting MRIs for just about, you know, for, for a lot of instances wasn't really on the horizon. Um, we have a very good uh, process in which we can evaluate all patients, whether they have conditional MRIs or not. Um, So, you know, we do this in a very reasonable, safe way. And and actually we have dedicated time slots to do these patients uh, at the main campus and at uh, Fairview Hospital in Hillcrest. So depending on the individual's history, you know, we we reevaluate it. And if we need to get uh, someone from uh, the company to be there to
1: reset the pacemaker after the MR scanner, you know, we do arrange all that. You know, when I started in medicine, an MRI was an MRI. And now in the brain tumor area, you know, we're using MRIs to do laser interstitial thermal therapy. Yes never would have thought of that many years ago where we can use the MRI to monitor real time thermography sure as we're tra- it's unbelievable it is uh you know i've been quite involved with the focused ultrasound mm mm-hmm. mhm you know, as you know, uh, we had Dr. Nagel and Dr. Lockwood, one of yes. your colleagues, on previously talking about high-intensity focused ultrasound, mm-hmm. where we're again doing thermal ablations. We're doing low-intensity focused ultrasound again, all done in an yes. MRI machine. Uh-huh. For blood-brain barrier breakdown. With, with blood down, yeah. barrier breakdown. I mean, it's, uh, it's just untapped. Yeah. Well, Doc Su, this has been a great educational event. At least I got to a- ask the questions that I wanted to get some answers to. Although I see you guys every day, all day, and you guys are, are just fantastic. And I don't think you're going to get replaced by AI, at least while I'm still working. But remember, I'm old uh, as things go through. So uh, thanks for joining me today and and uh, continued uh, enjoyment of, uh, of your career as you move forward in this exciting field.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Glenn. This concludes this episode of Neuro Pathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.